Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Welcome back. This is Tim Harris. And of course, this is Real Estate Coaching and Training Radio. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Today, we are sharing with you one of our favorite interviews that we've ever done for a whole variety of reasons, mostly because um, this uh, gentleman is perhaps one of the greatest American real estate success stories. And that is, of course, Glenn Sanford, the founder of EXP Realty. This interview we did last summer, late last summer, while we were on his yacht in his absolutely beautiful port um, outside of, uh, you know, in, in Washington State. You've got to listen to this interview. What I like best about this was the fact that Glenn was so willing to share um, unfiltered answers to my questions. And I was asking questions that were designed to um, get him off talking points, frankly, and he had no problem with it whatsoever. Did not put any limitations on the questions I was allowed to ask. And I loved hearing from him. And I'll tell you the story I like best about Glenn. Um, and we talk about this on today's uh, interview is that Glenn back in 2007 was running a very successful multi-state uh, real estate team, basically, for Keller Williams. And the market changed, the housing market crashed, and all these things happened that are now, you know, you know about that. So Glenn was on his heels financially. And then Glenn had the inspiration to start EXP Realty. Now that in itself is phenomenal. But Glenn goes inside 15 years, goes from basically being what I think he'll, when you listen to the pod, uh, podcast or listen to the video today, you'll realize he was just flat broke, to becoming a billionaire. He did that in 15 years. How many people have done that in their lifetimes? Very few. How many have done it in the real estate industry? Even fewer. So this is truly one of the greatest, I think, legendary business people of all time, especially uh, fortunate to have him as our uh, as the founder of EXP Realty that Julie and I are aligned with. And also is really, really fortunate and blessed to have had him as someone who was, um, you know, allowing me to interview him. So enjoy today's podcast or if you're listening to us on YouTube and do remember to like and subscribe. Do remember to give us a five-star review on iTunes and please do ask your questions and, and add comments in the uh, section below. We certainly appreciate you guys continuing to make this the number one listen to daily podcast for real estate professionals in the United States. And we certainly also appreciate you uh, subscribing to the YouTube channel. So go ahead and do that now. In the meantime, enjoy. Three, two, one, and we're back and we have a very special guest today, Mr. Glenn Sanford the founder of EXP Realty. So Glenn, thank you very much for meeting with us. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. And if we're if we, there's a strange echo, it's because we are in a very different space than when Julie and I normally do the podcast. We are on Glenn's, is it okay to call this a yacht or do we call it a big boat? Which is the way? I'm not really yeah, sure. It's, it's a, well, I guess it's, it's 72 feet long, so it's a yacht. Yeah. What is, what's the cutoff between boat and yacht? S supposedly around 35, 40 feet is like, like the, is like it becomes yacht, yacht length or something like that. But it definitely, when you get into this range, you're definitely a yacht. So there's no question once you get into like the 70 foot range. Yeah. I can see why you love this thing. It's amazing. This is, it's just beautiful. This is one of those experiences that I can imagine being out on the ocean and just never wanting to come home. Yep. And uh, when we get Elon Musk's Starlink, uh, right. then we'll actually be able to do that. So we need high-speed internet to be able to 
you know, work from anywhere uh, when you're out on the water. Podcast listeners know that we bounce around, but you just touched on something that's a recurring theme on the show. As, and we're seeing this now that Julie and I are driving around the country. You go to these little forgotten about towns and you're seeing uh, the real estate market going crazy. You see people from the, you know, two, three hours away that, you know, formerly lived in big cities moving to these little forgotten about hamlets because of the availability of, you know, the connectivity, but also because the changed expectations of working remotely. Yeah, well, and of course, that's been going on for quite a while. I mean, ever since we became more of a, an information-based economy, I think, uh, you know, the ability to work from anywhere becomes much more of a reality. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, you know, I saw that in, you know, the two, actually even pre-2000, I was, I was an internet guy. I actually grew up a lot, about 20 miles from where we're sitting right now, up across the Canadian border. Could you put that just a little bit higher? This, we're, we're using sure. very low-tech equipment, and, wanna, and I don't I'm want you guys to... This and I'm going to actually hold it like a microphone. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do, too. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, so the... Um, but I've always loved to be able to go to a big city, but I don't like to live and work in a big city other than occasionally. Well, it's, you know, it's fascinating. That's definitely what seems to be the, you know, the, the world is following your, your model, I think, and how to live and work. And well, you live in, this is just an exceptionally beautiful part of the country. We haven't been up here for 20 years. So beautiful. Just amazing. Yeah, no, we're, we're right. Uh, so for those listening, yeah, we're, we're right up on the Canadian border, um, right in Blaine, Washington. Uh, and the backdrop is Mount Baker. Um, so we've got, uh, you know, a ski slopes in the background, got the Vancouver mountains are in the backdrop this direction. Uh, the Olympics were there back in 2008 ish. I think it was, uh, San Juan islands. Um, we're sitting in a marina and we can boat out into the San Juan islands. And when Canada fully opens up, we'll be able to boat up into the Canadian hmm. Gulf islands. So that's kind of the, what we're really excited about this part of the world. It's got so much, um, accessibility to, you know, natural activities i think there's a formula one race too over in vancouver if i remember correctly well i think there is um i've seen it once uh at least i've seen the the not not in person but i saw them set up like like rails yeah, and must stuff. be where it is yeah well so we're going to jump to questions we've got and, and we're we're gonna i mean we may get to all these we might get just to three of them and fights might find something we can drill down on and it's fun so we'll see how this goes so we, Julie and I wrote down some uh, business questions, and a, a few of these questions are the types of questions that we wrote down uh, because they're the types of questions that agents are asking. You get these two, you know, and but others I think will be a lot more interesting, I think, for the listeners to listen to because they're more personal in nature. You good to go? I'm good to go. Okay. I think he's moving a satellite right now with his phone, listeners. Oh, my yeah, gosh. There was a, there, he's actually, talking. I had, a, I had, a, I had a, somebody, I'm going to tell him I'm doing a podcast. Uh a podcast so i'm going to just message somebody that i was supposed to talk to and i forgot to message him so anyway we're, we're good to go you know it's kind of funny we're sitting here where we are presently and julie and i are realizing that this is about as other than alaska this is about as far away from home as we could be this or hawaii you know considering we live in puerto rico <laughs> all right ready yeah, all right good all right. so um Easy questions to start with, and we'll get into some more interesting ones, I think. Well, these are interesting, too, but what are you working on now that most inspires you, um, either business or personal? Uh, well, the person I was just actually messaging quite was actually Glenn Stearns from mm -hmm. Kind Lending, so we're just in the process of actually setting up um, uh, success lending. So that's, I'm actually pretty excited about that because it brings together 
um, two Glens. I mean, both of us <laughs> named Glens, but um, but somebody who's uh, been an innovator in the, the the mortgage space, and then sort of trying to come up with some unique innovations by thinking out of the box about what we're going to do in the lending space. So I'm kind of really excited about that. That looks like. Uh, the Success Magazine ac- acquisition last year has really opened up a lot of interesting opportunities between co-working, um, coaching. Um, we've got Success Experts, which is um, a pretty unique platform that we launched fairly quickly because of the, uh, you know, some stuff that took place because of Dave Ramsey sort of cutting off EXP agents from his platform. So we had a number of agents that needed leads to keep their business going because they were more about getting those inbound referrals weren't really concerned about paying referrals so just a lot of things we're working on i mean it's just there's other stuff i can't talk about yet because we haven't talked about it um publicly yet but um but those are some things that we've definitely talked about that i'm pretty excited about the mortgage thing's going to be huge there's no doubt and he's an ideal partner he built a big mortgage company and sold it right he did yeah so so glenn stearns um anybody has a chance to watch the first season of undercover billionaire um, he was on the first season, but it was pretty pretty unique guy in that he had built from the 80s the fifth largest mortgage company in the United States. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, he ended up getting cancer. And uh, during that time, he sold the business to Blackstone, I think it was. And that was because, you know, he didn't know exactly what was going on with his health, wanted to, to you know, prep. And he was able to recover from the, the cancer uh, his non-compete ran out, and he's like, man, I want to get back in the mortgage game. So uh, in the, the Undercover Billionaire was interesting. Uh, one of the talk, – talked about kind lending, and, and he and Mindy Stearns were on there. And Debbie and I had been – we watched the whole season. We are like going, man, would love to be in business with, with, with this guy because he just was such an endearing persona. And uh, then got a chance to meet him because the on the second season was uh, Grant Cardone, who we, obviously we've got a business relationship now with with Grant, and Grant uh, put me beside uh, Glenn Stearns in his house. We started chatting, and now we got success lending. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, the success acquisition was something that surprised a lot of people because it seemed like, well, how does how does a real estate company buy? But then it was just a matter of weeks that you started to roll out, and people started to see what you were planning on doing with that brand. And then when you put it in, when you think about it from a real estate agent's perspective, it's all, all of a sudden we have success lending. We're going to have, I guess there's going to be a luxury division for EXP that's going to be built under success. I don't know yeah, if that's still in the works, but yeah. Yeah, but we're, we're working on, we're trying different stuff out because we're really thinking about this whole idea of brand expansion. And, and we think about a, a brand, success is a 125-year-old brand. It's been around and it's, it's had everybody from Napoleon Hill to Ogmandino to, you know, more recently, uh, Mel Robbins. A couple of issues ago, we had Jamie Kern Lima. The, you know, she, she founded a company and, and um, sold it uh, to, I think it was L'Oreal for over a billion dollars. Um, she's like 40 years old. And, um, but it's all these people who've been super s- successful in, in life and are willing to give back and help other people be more successful. It's not, it's not so much about the recognition, even though there's always some sort of monetary reward that sort of attached to, you know, putting yourself out there in, in that sort of way. But it's really about how do I help other people think the right way, act the right way, do the right things to sort of take their, their life, their business to the next level. Well, 
makes perfect sense. But from a from an agent broker's perspective, from a real estate agent, I would imagine they didn't. You know, the the opportunity to be associated with a brand that's over a hundred years old, that has so much incredible historical tie-ins. It's not like just any. It's so beyond the normal things that a big real estate company would ever do. And and I, so it was it was thinking so far out of the box that I think initially people were going like what and then like I said just a couple of weeks later you were there started to see where your mind was going with all of it and it's like wow this is amazing because you could do so many little spinoffs associations and that's such a well known I mean you go to any magazine stand and I where there's a magazine stand right right and there's Success Magazine and it's been there forever mm-hmm. that's incredible yeah there's been some breaks in the history uh, of the magazine where it wasn't on the stands. But, uh, you know, it's been, uh, I think the, the previous owner kind of resurrected it in 2008. Darren Hardy mm-hmm. was really big with the magazine for a number of years. And, uh, and you talk to real estate agents all, all the time. I'm, I'm talking to, to, to different real estate agents from all kinds of different brands, just not just EXP. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I would get the magazine. I take the CD and I put it in my CD player and mm-hmm. I listen to it while I was out, you know, showing properties because it just helped reinforce uh, the principles of success, and and as a result, agents were more successful. And so, really wanting to bring that forward into, you know, more uh, into the real estate ecosystem of EXP, so that we can just help people think the right way, do the right things, and 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 get the results that that just a change in the way you think and operate can make. Yeah, and it's. I, I love it. I, I mean, I, I love the guy, you know, who you have. Don's great. You know, we've known Don since forever. So it's, it's great. So let's move on. So what is the what is the biggest challenge or threat? Um, we have, you know, mostly agents listening. So what's the biggest challenge or threat to the real estate market that nobody's talking about? Yeah, um, well, I think the, well, when you say what, that nobody's talking about, I think the <laughs> stuff that everybody's talking about, you, you know, the, you know, iBuyers is, it's one of those ones that is probably not as big a service to the, to the consumer community, but you know, ultimately is part of this attempt by big money to, to interrupt the normal transactions of real estate. So I think there's, there's a lot of money that's being thrown at this thing. Now, it serves other interests if you think about Zillow specifically, you know, whether they buy a home or not they're generating a ton of leads that they're just going back and selling to agents. So it's a great sort of trap for leads. But I think there's, there's other companies that really want to, you know, change fundamentally what it means to be a real estate agent and, and representing a buyer, like buyer representation in, in my opinion is probably the big thing that's is really being threatened right now. And, and you look at the, the sort of the, the lawsuits and, you know, even the Justice Department right now is sort of relooking at some of the stuff that they're, they did with NAR and some different, different folks. And, and you just, I know that there's, there's some big money out there that doesn't understand why cooperative real estate actually benefits the consumer. And they just, they just simply go, well, if they charge, you know, 2.5% in the UK, then then consumers shouldn't be paying whatever they pay here in the U.S. Let's just say it's five and a quarter percent or five and a half, whatever the number is, and they just mentally can't get their head around it. But if you talk to a consumer that's bought real estate in the U.K. versus the U.S., they love the way the business operates in the U.S. because you get to work with an agent that represents you. In the U.K., 
none of those agents are representing your interest. You're only working with somebody who represents the interests of the seller, and you're only working with various seller's agents, and they're there to, to ultimately do what the seller wants. It's a buying a car experience, basically, versus what we have here in the United States. It's what it is in virtually all the rest of the country, or all the rest of the world, except the United States and Canada. People don't know that, too, that you travel a little bit, you'll realize that there's no, like Glenn just said, there's no real co-op anyplace else in the world. But, you know, it's funny. Uh, Brad Inman, I remember when Inman News started. I was the tech company he started before Inman News. I don't remember. There was one. It was a spinoff from one, Microsoft. He did, he did Book at one time. He did Home Gain at one time. That's Home Gain I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. So, and then he started Inman. Uh, and I remember he was talking about this big word back in the 90s that scared everyone. Disintermediation, right? So the idea that there's going to be no need for realtors or the industry or the uh, you know consumers are going to evolve out of not wanting to be represented in a transaction is that war already fought and, you know, essentially lost on behalf of the tech companies? In other words, haven't the tech companies already tried to disintermediate agents and it's just not going to work because consumers ultimately want to use a realtor? Yeah, well, there was certainly an attempt to make a real estate professional more akin to, well, I think they were looking at like the hotel industry and the travel industry and how it had totally changed because of the web. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about, you know, getting a seat in coach versus buying a house. You don't need a lot of data. You just need to know that you're going from Seattle to Miami and there's a plane that's going that direction. And you hope that you can get something that's not a middle seat. <laughs> and that's pretty much the whole sum of the whole exercise. I mean, if you don't get the middle seat, yeah, you might be stuck by the bathroom, which might be a little stickier. But but the middle seat's the one that you want to avoid. Otherwise, the whole the whole plane is pretty much the same. You can get an aisle, you can get a window, you know. And so, real estate's not that way. Real estate, every house is different. You know, you sit there right now. We're we're looking at you know some properties just because we've got some interest in in some different properties. There's a lot of work that goes into trying to find the property. One, you know, what does it have the right room configuration? That's one thing. But what does it feel like? What's the neighborhood feel like? What are the you know what you know, what does this community stand for? And you can't, a tech company can't actually represent any of that. And that's why I think at the end of the day, real estate agents will be just as important 10 years from now as they are today, just as they were 10 years ago. And so for, for real estate agents, I think their their business is, is solid. Now, will a percentage of the business go a different direction? We'll pick iBuyer. Uh, for sure, there's going to be, there's always been, We'll call them cash for keys. We buy ugly houses. You know, mm-hmm. some sort of institutional buyer that will you know buy pretty much anything and give you a price for it and give you instant cash for keys. But um, most people want to maybe maximize the value of their home, and and maybe ultimately the amount difference. And I did did some math on on Zillow's iBuyer offering. I figure it costs a consumer about thirteen percent. I think it was thirteen percent was the number that came up, versus about six percent. For, for an agent, if you sort of just do the delta between those two numbers, 7% of the value of the home can make a huge difference when you think about leverage over time. Let's just say it's your first home and maybe you, maybe you're talking about 60000 50000 $40,000, maybe, well, actually, maybe only $10,000. So say it's $10,000. Well, if that $10,000, you think about going through two or three houses and you lose money each time, you'd be looking at something akin to four or $500,000 when you get time when it's time to retire, difference. And that could make a 
huge difference. So, you know, I think that the iBuyer is a disingenuous way to say that they're looking out for consumers and a way more to make money. It's a convenience fee. That's what we call it. I mean, that's basically, that's what consumers are sometimes obviously willing to pay. But you said it right. I mean, they've always been willing to do that. We buy ugly houses. Those, you know, they're always been wholesale buyers forever. It's not a new right. idea, which is kind of funny too, because I buyer sounds so much more sexy than we buy ugly houses to some people, I suppose. But there always have been people in that business and there always will be in people, people in that business. You know, it's kind of interesting too, is when the when there's a lot of equity in properties and there's a lot of, uh, you know, demand for this market, it, when the market goes the opposite direction and people's equity position shrinks, it'll, those I buyers, where's the business model? It doesn't really exist. But that's not our reality now for sure. Right. But I will say, though, the um, I buyer that we offer at EXP is so exceptional in that an agent, you know, we talk about this on the show all the time. If you don't have as an agent an I buyer option in your toolbox when you're going to talk to a seller and you are competing against one of the open door Zillows, you're kind of you're on your heels. So having EXP offer an I buyer, what a brilliant move. Yeah, so we yeah, you know, we launched Express Offers. It's gonna be getting close to about two years ago when we when we launched it, or at least we conceptualized of it initially. And we said, why? Why are we going to take the balance sheet risk? We're 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 we, we're a capital light company, meaning that we don't put a lot of capital at risk in any anything. So we don't have a lot of bricks and mortar, and so we're really capital light. But we also looked at the fact that there's a lot of people who want to buy homes in local communities for whatever reason. Maybe they want to buy them for their rental pools. Maybe they do want to buy to fix and flip, um, and and uh, you know whatever whatever reason they wanted to do that. We thought if we could create an, a marketplace of those types of buyers and then allow consumers to tap into that marketplace and see three or four potential bids on their same property, if it fits different buy boxes, then that would be that would benefit a consumer. And then the agent comes in and says, OK, here's your three or four offers. By the way, we can get an offer from from Open Door and Zillow offers or what have you. But at the end of the day, if it's a fully marketed listing, here's what the difference is in net. And the net difference can be significant. You know, you were mentioning the loss of that they're taking by essentially wholesaling their houses every time. That's not even taking necessarily, or maybe you did in your analysis, taking into consideration the loss of the, uh, not really compounding, but the interest they would have made on that equity had they kept it in the property with the appreciation of the property or inflation, right? Right. So it's, it is, it's mind-boggling, really. Yep. It truly is. Um, all right. So what happens to EXP? I get this one occasionally. I love this question personally because it's so fun to answer. But what happens to EXP in a recession? Yeah, so we were actually built and designed um, specifically to be able to weather any market. And we were we launched in two thousand nine, bottom of the housing market. Um, you know, we we one of the phrases that I'd used earlier in the year is April two thousand nine. Some some of the agents said, "When do we get our offices back?" <laughs> and and I, I said, we don't know how long the market's going to suck, so we need to be able to de develop a defensible business model that's not dependent on bricks and mortar. And, and, and we need to be able to be able to be profitable in good times and bad times. And the only way we could do that is by eliminating the single biggest cost of residential real estate brokerage, which is the physical office, uh, which then is also followed closely by this, this redund redundant staffing costs that exist in every office in the country. So... You've got uh, you've got a receptionist or a director of first impression, and you got the the bookkeeper or the MCA or whatever you know nomenclature. But you've got four or five people that are in every single office in the U.S. of that's decent size, two hundred 
two-person office, maybe they don't have anybody, but, but if they're a decent size, they've got four or five people that man that office, which is just a requirement in order to be able to run effectively. And uh, by running entirely virtual, we're able to reduce our staffing footprint and still provide a higher level of service in a lot of cases than most of our bricks and mortar counterparts um, with by leveraging the best in the business from all over the country rather than the best person in the office. So when you have a tech challenge and you're in one of these other offices, you know, they've got some tech kid or in the back that can, can do some tech stuff, but they're not that good. Whereas we've got really great people in, because we've got the best tech people in the country that will help work on your computer. We'll remote in, we'll, we'll come in, we'll send you down to the shop, whatever. We'll do the things that are necessary to get you back up in ways that a local office, where they'll go, hey, we just sell real estate. If you need to get your computer fixed, you need to go to Best Buy. You know, that would be their answer. So we just, we were able to provide higher level of support. And then with all that means that if there's a recession, we can actually reduce all of our costs because they're all variable costs. And if you, you know, if you're a business owner, a brokerage owner, I'll use broker, broker owner listening to this, you know, the biggest, we talk about fixed costs, that's your bricks and mortar costs. And you got your insurance, and then you got, you know, there's probably three or four or five different fixed costs. Then in a recession, guess what? You still have to pay those. Yeah, those kill you. Yeah. And that's why so many people went out of business in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2007 even. And uh, in the next recession, unfortunately, you know, there'll be a lot of people who will have to consolidate and figure out how to get out, out from underneath those nuts because you're typically signing three to five year leases. And in a recession, we should actually pick up market share because if you're an agent wondering, where do I go next? Do you want to go somewhere that might go into business in the next recession? Or do you want to go with a company that's actually built to weather any marketplace? I agree completely because really at the end of the day, most agents, brokers won't make, well, brokers and sometimes teams won't make decisions uh to move over when the cash is flowing, right? When right. money's flowing, deals happening, everyone's happy, you get your awards and your plaques, it's when that slows down. And usually it takes about 90 days, three slow months in a row, and then people start having to shovel, keep the lights on, coming out of their own pockets, using their own savings. And and uh, that's written, I suspect there will be a you really unprecedented increase in the number of people joining EXP. We're already seeing it. I mean, the net growth for your company is extraordinary every single month. It's, is there, Glenn, do you know if there's ever been a company that's grown in net agent count per month this fast? Um, according to Real Trends, no. Like Real Trends just came out with a stat that EXP Realty is the fastest growing, organically growing real estate company over the last five years of any company they've ever studied in the industry. Um, and, and if you think about the fact that, you know, we're basically coming up on close to 60,000 agents today. Um, so we're 59,000 and, and change. And you just think about, you know, in 11 and a half, 12 years, we went from basically zero to, to 60,000 agents. Um, yeah, nobody's grown that fast. I mean, Keller didn't even, I mean, think, I think they started in 84. And I think by 94, they were probably still only, you know, 1,000 agents or so. So, and, and Remax, you know, I don't know what it did, but it, you know, it grew fast, but it, it, it also was in the 70s and 80s. It's a different marketplace, but historically, nobody's grown as fast as we have. You're actually bringing up an interesting, so a lot of these big brands, before it was, you could argue Century 21 was one of them before our time, but then Remax and then Keller Williams and all these, other, they seem to have a, a well, I, you know what, I'm not going to jump on the questions. It's, it's at the top of the sheet of the next 
page, so I'm going to use those questions because you'll like it. Okay. It's about where EXP is on its growth cycle as far as a product goes. Um, all right. This was a Julie question, but I liked it. Outside of developing EXP, what are you rationally passionate about? Uh, well, I'm boating. I mean, that's you're sitting on. I the can boat. see that. Yeah. So this is this is something I really enjoy doing. But I'm a long distance runner. Um, still do a fair bit. I ran my first true uh, half marathon a couple three four weeks ago, I think, something like that. So I like to run half marathons. In 2015, I think I did six of them, and then I think I did four in 2016, and then then I dealt with some issues that took me out of my running game in a significant way for for couple of few years but then got a few going in 2019 again so big runner enjoy doing that enjoy boating um do a little bit of well i'll probably get back into grappling again i did judo for 27 years hmm. did brazilian jiu-jitsu for eight years i didn't know that interesting yeah. so yeah so I, I i enjoy you know mar- martial well we'll just say grappling arts is my my thing and and then i you know i enjoy growing businesses like i I keep on going to Jeff Whiteside. So Jeff, Jeff's my C, our CFO and chief collaboration officer. And I go, okay, I'm going to start like relaxing a bit. He says, go for it. We got, we got it. And like, I, I, it's like every day I was like, I'm always working on more stuff EXP. So I mentally, I like, I, I'm going, well, I should take more vacations. I'm like, but I enjoy working on work too much. That's interesting though. That's, I mentioned that we live in Dorado and I've had that very conversation with a lot of the very successful people that we run across. And I asked them, so, you know, are you going to retire or and they're usually in their late 50s early 60s i would say most of the ones that i'm seeking advice from you know and they never want to say they'll never they always say well no i take some you know when i'm vacationing it'll be for a month and it'll be for august and i go to italy with my boat or whatever but for the most part they love what they're doing that's where they get their fulfillment from but not only that that they see the impact of all the people's lives i mean julie and i talked about you today on the podcast and, um, you know, the very fact that you've been so impactful on so many agents' uh, lives, but not just that, their families and the generations that come after that. Do you intellectualize that? Do you think about that? Um, only when I see, like, an in-person event. Yeah, I bet. Like, because, you know, as you can tell, I live pretty pretty remote compared to where the agents, and you sort of, and you think about what does 60,000 agents mean? <laughs> and I mean, that there there's football stadiums that won't hold 60,000 people. Yeah. And, 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 and those are big stadiums even in themselves. So, you know, I'll go there and I'll go, can you, that's when it kind of overwhelms me a bit to think about what that actually represents. And, uh, but fortunately I don't see 60,000 agents every day. So I'm able to just put my head down and just work on the business. So along those lines, this is actually, you might want to listen to today's podcast because we ended up talking about you a lot. It was all good stuff. Um, But we were talking about the fact that previous leaders of companies, but specifically of real estate companies, have always been these big braggadocious, you know, sort of look at me, want to be the center, like almost like they want to live their life, their rock star dreams out on stage, not that they're head of some big brokerage. I think you know what I'm talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you're not. And you made, like when you think of EXP, you think of EXP Realty and Glenn Sanford, but you didn't, you, you don't seem to have an ego conflict with, I don't know how to express it, but you understand what I'm saying? You don't seem to have this insatiable desire to be the center of everything, which is an admirable quality from our perspective and incredibly rare, especially as someone in your position. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, I've always been a business, sort of a business nerd. And, and so I just enjoyed building businesses rather than, and, and it's never, well, I don't want to say it's never been about me, but I've never named something 
Well, when I was a kid, my first company was called Sanware Software. So, so S-A-N for Sanford. And, and where was, was for sort of software kind of a thing. And I was 15 years old. So that was my first business that, that I quote unquote incorporated and had business cards and stuff for. But everything else I've always thought about the concept and the idea um, and, then, and then wanting to encapsulate in a way that I wasn't needed at the end of the day. You know, if you, if you have a business, you know, and this is where I, I'll, I'll coach agents and, and there's no one right way or wrong way. Everybody's got a different perspective. But I personally am not a big fan of people who want to build big businesses naming it after themselves because I think it then limits their ability to actually scale when they want to step back. And so I just built that in sort of day one. You know, EXP Realty has nothing to do with me other than I'm working on the founder of the company. And But at the end of the day, the business, I want it to la- outlast me. And so I'm always working on how can I not be the center of, the, of attention. So that's what I, I really actually work work on is how do I not have to be the one out front? And it's a it's something I had to do for a while because, you know, it was, you know, ideas that I had originally developed and, um, quite frankly, couldn't pay people, quite uh, the type of people that I would need to be on the on this with me uh, to be able to take the reins in the early days. So I had to be the lead for, you know, five, six years, you know, seven years maybe. And now it's, you've got so many great leaders. And I always thought about as well was I wanted to be involved in a company if I was an agent where I wasn't building it somebody else's name. So, you know, I, you know, I was with Keller Williams at one point, And, of course, there's other companies been named after a number of other people, Coldwell Banker and others. Um, uh, and, and I've always sort of been had an aversion to the name of the person being the name on the shingle. If it wasn't if it wasn't me, and I didn't want my name on the shingle either, um, and and so for me, it's always been about how do I play a background role. I was I refer to myself as the highest paid assistant in real estate because I don't really think about myself as you know telling people what to do, but I want to be able to get in there, get my hands dirty, help somebody with a with a project, step back and allow them to sort of enjoy the success of whatever that is as it continues to grow. When did you with EXP? Uh, we have been um, solicited for six years prior to joining, and it was it was just for us it was just not the right time. It didn't make sense. We were worried that it was going to have a bad effect on our coaching business. We just had all these things we hadn't thought through, and then a couple things happened with regards to talking to different people, and we realized that we weren't thinking clearly in the rest of it. And that was in late 2018, middle 2018. But when was it? where you realized the company had taken a real definite turn to where it is now? Like, was there a time, was there like a, holy, holy tamale, we went from a thousand agents to 2,500 agents, or was there any epiphany like that? Yeah, um, there were definitely different inflection points. Um, you know, when we, when we uh, became a public company that in 2013, that was an important piece because we knew that, that as part of the ingredient set, we believed that, that equity was going to be a game changer and then we introduced our agent equity program in, in late 2014 and and that's what you know, quite frankly attracted gene frederick and then you know and gene came in and and that guy was just a just a monster he's the one that we talked to that convinced us okay yeah yep. so so you know the the it was you know when we started to attract people like gene now i you know brian colhane uh, you know, he was former president of, of EXP and, and he was part of the, 
the founding group of, of agents that helped us um, launch the company in the original days. But I, I said, we're, you know, the, the person that we're building this for hasn't shown up yet. But when they show up, this company's going to take off. And, and for us, I think that was when Gene Frederick joined us. And I just said, you know, we're, this, we're, we're building it for, I, I know the persona because if I, was, if I was not building EXP, I would have been looking for EXP. Mm. Uh, and, and so I was building the company I really wanted to be a part of. And I figured if, if we could find somebody who was looking for us, that we'd start to really take off. And that, I think that first real big win was, was, was Gene. Looking for you, looking for EXP, but not necessarily knowing that they're looking for EXP, but you understood the problems that they have and you could identify their problems and you were the solution even without them necessarily knowing that they were looking for you. Is that right. about right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the miracle of this thing. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the brilliance of, well, actually, it, it, I, again, I keep on wanting to jump forward on my questions. Um, use, and now, if I'm remembering this wrong, feel free to tell me I'm remembering this wrong. But I remember, I think I remember, watching a video where you were being interviewed a number of years ago where you said there's two things agents don't do, pay taxes and save money. That Was that you? I, I did say that, yeah. Yeah, and I remember that was one of the things that Julie and I, because we had been in the coaching business forever, and I always, when agents would come to us and ask which brokerage we should, you know, they should join prior to EXP, we'd say, they're all basically the same. Mm -hmm. So we stayed broker agnostic until we understood what you had created. And that very statement was so true. And it's true not just with beginning agents or midland agents. It's true with top producers as well. I mean, we've coached all these guys in different spectrums of, of income and revenue and success. And they very rarely have been able to accumulate any meaningful net worth for a whole bunch of reasons. Not all of them, they're, they're their own fault, truthfully. I mean, commissions, as you talked about, on the buyer agent side of the transaction has gone down. You know, the business model has changed. They don't adapt fast enough. Whatever, right? The market changes. And a lot of these people end up, and I, you know, do you, were you, when did you get your license? Uh, 2002. Okay. So were you, Howard Brenton was barely, I, Julie and I were Howard Brenton stars from the 90s. Right. And Howard Brenton's uh, business model was to interview what he perceived to be the top agents in the United States and Canada. <laughs> And, and I remember when Julie and I got to know a lot of those top agents, you know, Penny McLaughlin doesn't live too long, far from here and others. They, um, we get to know them and to a person, big lifestyle, big personalities, big whatever, but not they, you know, a couple bad seasons and they were going to be, you know, out of the business. Yeah, out of the business. And Julie and I, that's how we learned for, in our formidable years, fortunately, that following these big team models aren't necessarily going to get you to a point of having, um, you know, essentially being financially independent. My, my point being is that when you were in a similar situation, if I'm correct, when you started EXP, can you talk about that? Well, um, you know, I fortunately before EXP and before I got into real estate, I'd been around a lot of business people. My dad had started a successful business and, and then ultimately lost it all. But I, but I learned some, some formative lessons there, but I had some really good mentors and uh, in, in business. And what I realized is when I when I got my license um, in in the business was that, well, one of the very first things I did is I put myself on salary. So I, I became an agent on somebody else's team, even though I did all the lead generation, he would just guarantee me a little bit of a salary. So I did my lead generation and I went and sold. And then I gave him 30% on top of that. And I gave the office 30 or 40%. So anyway, I was not, I didn't have a lot of, of income coming in, but he guaranteed me three grand a month. So that's where I started. But within a very short period of time, I put myself on, on salary. Hold on. Don't you think it's funny what you just said? 
Uh, how, how old were you? Uh, 35. Okay. So you're in your mid-50s now. But don't you think that's miraculous? You were like, three grand a month, sign me up. And it wasn't that long ago, Glenn. I know. And now you're one of you're on Forbes' list of one of the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's well. <laughs> I, my my dad taught me a lot about equity as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so one of the things he he taught me years ago is um, he he pulled out a hundred dollar bill and he pulled out a share certificate worth a hundred dollars and he showed them both to me. And he said, "Glenn, which one's worth more?" And I said, "Well, or, or which one would you want?" I said, "Well, I." give me the hundred dollar bill and he says no that's not the right way to think about it you want the hundred dollar share certificate because you know if you're building a company you can actually print effectively more share certificates you start printing hundred dollar bills you go to jail so it's actually so i so i learned this thing about equity and perceived value of equity and what it meant um you know as companies became successful and why uh, equity is actually a way more powerful part of the model than anything else when you think about business in general and and it comes back to this whole idea that real estate agents don't own a business real estate agents have a business that owns them and meaning that if something happens to them their business is out of business or their personal business because they don't really own a business but the broker owner you know they just replace the agents and sort of just churn through them and 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 you know there's not a really a care for the agent it's more a care for how many agents do we have at the brokerage because that's going to help them make their net and hopefully some of them sell and and so i just recognize there's a fundamental flaw in the way real estate brokerage was set up and so i said okay well i'm going to become a good agent i was big internet lead generator that's why I, i was on the path that i was on um i was rookie of the year ended up um but my uh first full year in the business I was uh, the number three in the office so I was a good great agent but within that first year or so I actually put myself on salary so um so I I, I think it was like four grand a month that was my that was my salary gave yourself a raise that's good though you went from three to four I went from three to four but the 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 three was the guarantee the four was my salary but everything else I put into the business so I was building out websites I was you know hiring staff I was I was um doing pay-per-click I was doing a bunch of stuff with the with all the extra money and then I'd give myself raises over time but one of the things I keep on trying to to convince agents uh, to do is to put themselves on salary as opposed to pay themselves based on commission because once you pay your put yourself on salary you can actually run a P&L against your business and you actually run your business like a business and now you can start to think about what are the various puts and takes that you can um, put, use on your on your business plan to actually work on your business, not just in your business. So, so for me, the, one, but go back to the original sort of idea. The the original idea was to protect agents from themselves, <laughs> meaning that left to our own devices as agents, and me included, left to my own devices as an agent, I would be broke. And I think left to most agents' devices. They would be broken. Most agents are broke, and 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 so you have to figure out what are the various systems and processes that you need to put in place to actually have a business that you're actually building, and most agents can't get there. So, I saw the opportunity of putting the infrastructure in place, so an agent would have all the benefits of a business that they're building, 
without having to go through all the brain damage of putting in all the infrastructure to have that business. Yeah. And it's, I remember, uh, what, I mean, you've experienced this, I'm sure in abundance, all the people that were just beside themselves with the increase in value of VXPI and, you know, not to mention, you know, revenue share and the rest of it. And for some, it is, it is so true what you said. There isn't, there is sort of a risk taker gene that seems to be uh, insatiable in most agents, whether they're top producers or not. They almost don't like the comfort of financial security. And unless they build systems around that sort of just accept the fact that's how they're always going to be, like you said, basically, they're probably always going to end up broke. And that is definitely I don't know if it's outside of real estate because I, my whole life's been in real estate, but it, it does seem to be a, a characteristic of most humans, actually. Yeah, I think a lot of most people in sales mm. um, because, um, you know, sales. Generally, I mean, you, how many salespeople? I mean, I, I know there are some, but a, a percent. If you were to pick a percentage, what percentage of salespeople do you believe are actually good with paperwork? <laughs> yeah, none. Matter of fact, if you're good with paperwork as a salesperson, you're almost shunned by other salespeople. You know, it's almost like supposed to be some sort of, you know, skill you're supposed to intentionally be bad at. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, so I was not really good with paperwork, and and when I used to do my taxes, it was funny. I told my one of my early accountants back, and statute of limitations long run out. <laughs> but just, you hope, yeah, I hope, yeah. This was this was like 2005, so so I think that's far enough back. But um, she asked me how I how I um, um, how I did, how I figured out my expenses. I said, well, felt like that was what my expenses were. So that's why I wrote down my tax return. I felt like my expenses were $35,000 that year. And <laughs> she goes, I kind of, you know, lift, kind of put on my hand. Yeah, feels like 35000 in our book, we write that um, uh, real estate doesn't selling real estate, even at a very high level, won't make you rich. It's what you do with the profits from selling real estate that make you rich, which then forces the question: Are you running a profitable real estate business? Which most real estate agents aren't, especially in an age like this where buyer agent commissions are falling. And most, you know, I mean, back in the '90s when you had Julie and I had seven buyers agents, and back in the '90s, those buyers agents they were prospecting. They're picking up the phone. They were doing real work. They're holding open houses. Nowadays, it's buying leads, buying leads, buying leads. And a lot of the agents that got licensed since the you know, 2007, 2008, where all that stuff has become normalized, they don't realize that the original model for the team model, the margins were not what they are now, which is virtually nothing for teams. I mean, on our on this sojourn, right, we were driving all over the country. We keep on stopping by brokers and teams and whatnot. And I'm seeing that fixed cost, the ones that are in EXP agents. And, and truthfully, it makes me a little, makes me nervous for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and knowing that most of them have never sold, they've been licensed only since the real estate crash in 2009, 2010. So they've never been through a transitioning market or a buyer's market. And they build up all these fixed costs and it's become normalized. You know, that goes back to the validity of the business model you thought of. That, you know, it, it, all of them are going to be flocked. What's their alternative? Well, yeah, I mean, bricks and mortar based business, just to use kind of from an economics perspective, in order for them to continue to attract agents, they have to improve their splits, to the agents, you know, and, and provide the bricks and mortar and what have you. So let's just say to compete with an EXP, they're going to have to have a split model that's closer to an 80-20. They're going to have to have a cap model that's closer to 16,000 because they're worried about agents leaving to go to EXP. And it works in an up market. Right now we're in a we're in a market that, you know, a, a dog with a note in his mouth can sell real estate because there's so much stuff going on. Now, I say that in jest, but, it, there, you know, there's a lot of business going on in the marketplace. But when this thing slows down, um, you know, and you haven't and you've you've given up all of your profit effectively in attracting agents, you can't raise your fees on agents when their income's going down 
because they're now going to go somewhere else where they can actually you know, retain the amount of money that they were making, and in some cases make more money on the business that they still have left in a slower market. So I feel, I, I do feel for bricks and mortar based brokerages. I mean, I, they should be trying to figure out how do I turn my office into a co-working space? How do I get it out from being a, just a real estate brokerage? How do I eventually exit the bricks and mortar piece? But you know, 50% of offices are franchises in this country. And that means that 50% of them have contractual relationships with the franchise or to have a certain amount of bricks and mortar footprint in order to actually maintain the fran- be in, 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 uh, uh, with the franchise agreement. You know, the other question, I'm sure you get this too, um, that I get occasionally is, what would prevent an existing big competitor, pick your brand, let's not mention any names, right? Uh, copying EXP. What would prevent some big franchise model from, you know, it's already got well-known brand recognition saying, we're just going to do what EXP does. We see that they're sucking all the air out of the room. We're going to compete. What would prevent them from doing that? Well, it's, it's all, all the franchisees that have, that have uh, long-term leases on buildings because of the franchise agreement that they originally signed with the franchisor. Um, you know, if you've got six or 800 people that have franchises out there and you've got an average of two or three or four years left on your leases, and then your your parent company says, "Well, we're going to create this virtual model, and we're going to we're going to charge less, and and we're going to you know use the name." Guess what? All the franchisees are going to say are going to cry foul, and and they actually do in in this country have you know legal rights of protecting their business in the face of a franchisor. So franchisors are fairly hooped. Um, and, uh, you know, you think about your real G, okay, that maybe they go create an entirely new, new brokerage brand. Well, let's, what happens when everyone from Coldwell Banker, Century 21, and all the other brands that real G has, Sotheby's says, I'm going to go to that company that has that much better financial model and still has the backing of real G. Well, it just doesn't work. So, you know, and, and so that's where I think the challenge will be is if you're gonna cannibalize your own marketplace, you're gonna create so much internal strife that's probably not worth it. It's probably better to figure out ways to improve the, the financial model for the local broker owners. Otherwise, they're gonna they're going to cry foul. Yeah, that's, it is. The, the advantage in the marketplace that EXP has just from the, all the, just in the two and a half years you and I have been, or Julie and I have been associated with your company, the changes that have happened have just been amazing as far as the staff and, all your key people in the company and how efficiently things happen. Just the whole, just to try to recreate that from ground zero. Good luck. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's 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 the sort of the same reason that no one's ever going to catch up with uh, Tesla as far as selling electric cars. They're selling electric cars, but do they have a nationwide? I mean, Julie and I are driving driving around, and we're coming across these dusty old some of these towns, and sure enough, there's six you know Tesla charge ports that are sitting in the middle of these uh, three or four times. It's like. That cannot be real. That has to be some sort of mirage. And sure enough, Elon had built some charge port in the middle of nowhere. You know, at, good luck catching up with that. That's what EXP basically the advantage right, has. But I, but I do like the Porsche Taycan. I, oh yeah. I, I, like that, I'm. I, I looked at one the other day. That the, the, the was it the the Taycan Turbo S. Turbo probably. S. Yeah. yeah. That, you you totally should get that. Yeah. But I'm. But at the same time, I'm calculating. Okay, how far can I drive? It's only got a 201 mile range. Right. If I drive to Seattle and I got to come back and I got to find a place to charge it, and there's a, there's some places to charge it, but 
it's just that, but I, it's a beautiful car. Yeah, you're, so in those dusty old times, you're going to be charging your car, and you're not going to want to leave your car. That's kind of what I'm trying to pass along. Right. So that's, you know, that's more. But that that's means that coexistence of electric cars and dinosaur juice cars are going to exist for generations. And, you mm-hmm. know, don't get me started on cars. I'm a car nerd. Do you have time? Yeah, I do. Okay, good. Um, so, um, all right, if you had to go to someone for business uh, or personal advice, dead or alive, who would it be? These are good questions, they're, right? They're, they're great questions. That's a jilly question. That, yeah, so, well, well, probably, well, one of my mentors, he, he has passed, a gentleman named Gerald Salberg, um, but he would be somebody. Um, you know, I read tons of Tom Peters. Like, Tom Peters was my go-to in the 80s and 90s, read tons of stuff. He wrote the book In Search of Excellence. He's still, he's got, you know, he's got some stuff on social media and stuff, but he was... Um, he, he's certainly somebody I would uh, love to pick the brain of um, because so much of the stuff that he talks about, um, even back in that formative book, In Search of Excellence, is stuff that I still operate from today. Um, Stephen Denning, another, he's a more current author with a lot of great stuff, The Leader's Guide to Radical Management. Um, love to get a chance to, to chat with him. He's getting up there in age, but he's written so many amazing books on just the latest book I think that I read was The Age of Agile. It's really about how to have organizations sort of develop their own operating system internally in a way that isn't top down and then and then how to how that can be leveraged to scale. And so I really get interested in that type of stuff. So those would be people I'd chat with. I mean, without boring people talking about management, one of the nice things about EXP is there's not a lot of silos, right? Everyone, there's everyone sort of co-mingles. They sort of you you can talk to, you know, Dave, the president, co-president of the company, and he's got his fingers in his other things. You talk to Jason, and they all seem to know what's going on. It's not like people are this is my job, this is their job. Was that intentional? It was, yeah. So we don't really have. I mean, we we do have a uh, every organization uh, has some sort of top-down hierarchy. But ours is pretty loose. Like, uh, I don't, I, I literally, and I, I'd say this is pretty, pretty um, consistent. We don't tell a lot of people what to do. We ask people, we enroll people into ideas, we find out if they've got the time and the interest to work on different projects. But it's not a, it's not so much of, I need you to do this. Now, there's some people that are like, Whatever you need me to do, let me know I'm in. But they've sort of already pre-enrolled in whatever you want them to do. We just And those are really great people to work with. Uh, it's taken a while to, to sort through the right type of management personas in the organization. Um, but what we have figured out is that people, that we use net promoter score. You've probably mm-hmm. heard us talk mm-hmm. about that quite a bit. Uh, we use that as our primary metric for figuring out what to work on. And so if we're getting low scores on, on our net promoter score in a particular area, it allows us to rally to it. But it's not so much of, I mean, we still do it a little bit. Hey, I can get so-and-so to, to help on that, or I can get so-and-so to work on that. But they're already sort of mentally bought in to just doing whatever it takes, wherever they're needed. And so we do have a very uh, ebb and flow type of organization that can sort of move and float around and work on different things 
without it being as as hierarchical as as a lot of organizations. And it prevents people in big organizations. It really stymies the typical problem with growing companies of people trying to silo power and essentially adding staff and the rest of it. Whereas, you know, in, in your company, the way you've designed it, people all have a collaborative approach to accomplishing the goal. At least that's been our experience. It's very, very different right. than and, a traditional brokerage at the very least. Yeah. I think our one of the phrases I use is if it's not broke, break it. Um, <laughs> and, and the, the reason being is, is that I think everything can be improved. And if you allow things to, to get too solid in one particular area, then that actually can create its own problems. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea is let's always be fluid. Let's always be breaking things. Let's always be trying something new. Let's not accept that this is going to be always, or this team's always going to be running this. We want people to sort of think about the fact that they're really going to be working on different parts of the organization at different times. Uh, sometimes they might be working on Success Magazine. Sometimes they, they might float over to Verbella. They might float over to, to International in, in, in or broker jobs. I mean, they, people will float around and, and uh, get things done, and that's just the way we've kind of designed it. It also allows you to, uh, you notice how different people are, you know, doing better in this position versus that position. It gives you an idea of who you might want to, you know, promote or build, you know, put more energy behind. So. Yeah, so, so I think the term put more energy behind is probably the, the, the way that I think about it more because I, th- I think about the idea that there is obviously going to be promotions because there are their titles mean things to people, but I think of more of, you know, who do, do I, who can I, like, put energy into and know that they're going to use that in a, in a constructive way and that are going to be also inclusive and that they're not doing it from a power play. It's more of an add value play. Right. Makes total sense. I have some more good questions. Ready? You do. All yeah, right. Good. Is. So uh, ready for this one? I think so. This was a Tim question, and I thought actually this was kind of a funny question to ask you, but we'll see how you do. <laughs> how do you know if you're thinking big enough? And what stands and when you're when you catch yourself not thinking big enough, what's what what typically is standing in the way of you thinking bigger? Um, you know, the it's really what I've found is there's only a certain level that you can think above where you're at any given time. So like if if somebody's a brand new agent, you wouldn't think about running a worldwide real estate brokerage. So, but you could think about, you know, uh, potentially having an office or potentially recruiting a few agents or potentially this or that. So there's a certain level of, you know, what size, what's the next, the next iteration. Um, now, the, the other question is, does, will it scale? So I think like in 2009, we only had 25 agents, but we thought about the idea that, you know, that we might get a thousand or 2000 agents. I mean, we, we were going, that'd be, that'd be a pretty big win from 25 agents. And, and then we got into, uh, I think about 300 agents or so. And I remember Jason Guessing and I went and visited with Stefan Swanepoel and he was asking, what, where do you guys think you'll be in 2020? And, and Jason goes 10,000 agents. And Stefan was like, <laughs> you know, it was not, he, he, was, he thought it was a very incredulous number. And we're, we're like, well, we, we see how it's growing. We think it's gonna get there. And of course we finished well above that in 2020. Um, about 24,000, if I remember correctly, yeah, about 20, 25,000. Yeah, I'd say that's well above, well above that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, um, the, so, but the, um, but I think every time you get to the next level, then you get to think about the next level. So mm. there's, there's a certain, like, um, like I wouldn't be thinking about 
like right now I'm not thinking about running a GE style company like where that has all these you know huge divisions conglomerates and conglomerates and, yeah. but eventually who knows maybe that does become my thinking but I think it's a natural stepping stone but I think the idea is to always be thinking bigger always be thinking about the next iteration and recognize for me personally um, I find that every every six months to a year maybe a year and a half there'll be like this oh that might work and then I'll put some energy behind it and we'll see if it if it if it if it starts to work or it gets some traction uh, but the core of the business like fortunately knock on wood um, you know the core of the business is super solid I mean it's it's like the the value prop we've really dialed it in we're always working on it um, but at the same time it's what's powering all these other innovative ideas that might take us to the next level. I have a question here, but I'm going to let you read it first, and you tell me whether or not you want me to ask it. It's this one right here. Okay. If you don't want me to ask it, I won't ask it. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> well, you can ask. Yeah, okay. Sure. All right. I just wasn't sure. All right. So when you became a billionaire, and again, I think your, your story is a uniquely American story, but it's right. really something that's Personally, it inspires mm-hmm. the hell out of me, truthfully. Right. Especially considering, like you just said, <laughs> something funny. In 2009, there were 25 agents, right? And now there's like 60,000. Right. And I'm, I, I can't imagine the EXP growth is going to continue because the value proposition and the business model and the people that – just the whole thing. There's, right. Th- and mm-hmm. if the times get rough, I'm – God forbid people always have hardship and hard times and the rest of it, but that's even, you know, that's good for EXP ultimately. Again, hope it doesn't happen for this human hardship and whatnot, but you became a billionaire, not inside, inside what, 14 years effectively. Mm-hmm. What the hell? Yeah, well, I mean, so keep in <laughs> mind that there's two ways to think about it. One, it's, it's on paper, so it's not, it's not like, so there's a few things that I would have to do to actually truly have a billion dollars. Um, one, I'd have to sell all my shares. And if I did that, then I would lose the ability to help direct the company. So, you know, a lot of people will sort of go, you know, they'll, they'll see a number. And what it does is it represents sort of the, the value of the asset that I've built over time. But, you know, what can I do with the asset? It's still fairly limited. So I'm, you know, I, I live a pretty modest lifestyle compared to my billionaire status but when when i when i hit that number i think it was it was like well i got a lot of people reached out to me because they knew what the number was i think it was when the stock went over like 43 dollars and 50 cents last year (laughs) and and that that was the that was the magic number and then it went through that it's like and and it's like it was like 150 before the split wasn't it? It was, uh, yeah, it did get up there, but yeah, it's, uh, before the split, so, uh, it, it made a run up to like $90 post split. So, but anyway, it was, when it went through that, it was like, that's a, it's a big number. The number that infl- that really um, blew me away was when I actually, when my net worth on paper went over a hundred million. So that was in 2016, I think it was. And I was like, this is not like, I'm going, that's like not a normal number. Like, like, like it's like a hundred million is like, there's really nothing you can't do with a hundred million. So to some extent, the billion dollar number was actually less emotionally impacting to me than the hundred million number. Cause the hundred million number, I mean, I don't know who it wouldn't represent, but I think it represents a total freedom number. Like if somebody's got a hundred million dollars, there's no way 
they ever have to work again if they choose not to work. Well, but I'm going to ask you this question again because I am genuinely curious. There's, in the country, in the world, how many billionaires are there? On paper or otherwise, Glenn? Well, yeah, I think I think there's I think Forbes has like, like four hundred two thousand. Oh, was it really two thousand? Wow. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I think like I was like seventeen fifty on the list or something like that. So, getting back to the inspirational aspect of this, listeners, I hope you're putting these pieces together. Glenn sold real estate. Glenn had real estate teams. You know, Glenn's been up and down the you know real estate success mountain. He comes up with this inspiring idea during uh, a time of strife. Am I categorizing this correctly? Mm -hmm. And that makes him a billionaire. If that's not something that's going to be forever inspirational uh, for generations, I don't know what the hell will be. Truthfully, I mean, it's amazing. And you're not doing. And you're there's humility. There's there's a sense of there's no this grand. You're not what in the past two weeks we've had two billionaires decide to take their themselves to the space. I mean, good for them, right? right? It's pretty awesome. You know, but well, that take, takes a hundred billion to get there. Is that really? Yeah, it does seem like that's. You know what? I'm going to build a rocket ship. You know what the hell else am I going to do with my money? Right? Yeah. I know it's just fun. Uh, anyway, I think it's cool. So I'm. I appreciate that. Um, uh, Julie wrote this question down. So when you did become a billionaire, uh, did you call anyone to share it? Did you buy yourself any presents? Did you do anything to really kind of like? Was there anything that you can say? Okay, forty-three dollars a share. I'm a billionaire. People called you, I'm sure. But was there? Did you at least take yourself out and ha- get like a Big Mac or something? Yeah. So last year was a weird year with COVID. Mm. So, um, um, so I don't even know you could get to McDonald's. I mean, I'm just saying. Um, so I, I'm not sure exactly what we were doing. I think it was, um, I think it was October, November last year uh, was the time frame. But uh, didn't do a whole bunch. I think we were just hang, hanging around. Uh, around here and not so bad yeah not not a bad bad spot in in, in october it starts to rain so just just so you know it's not always this nice it's so beautiful here the temperature is like the only other climate i've ever been uh there where it's this nice is like you know the french riviera southern california now here it's just endless well you're going to tell me it's not endless days but endless days of 70 degrees no humidity and no clouds it's so beautiful yeah july august and early september you know basically you get Two and a half months. This is this is your weather pattern, and a huge amount of daylight. It doesn't. The sun doesn't set here till like nine thirty. Yep. Yeah. So, so, but back to your previous question. I called my dad. So of course, you know, hmm. called called him. Um, I'm and. Uh, Can you do you mind sharing that story? I mean, my dad passed away in two thousand nine. So I, if you don't mind sharing the story of when you called your, did he even know? Uh yeah, because he's also a shareholder. And oh he, right. And he does he does the math more on my stock than he than I do. <laughs> So he he probably he probably knew faster than I did, but um, he um, um, so I just I just had the conversation. I just said, you ever, did you ever did you ever expect to see anything like this or something like that? And and you know he, you know it blew him away. Like ironically, he kept on telling me, you know, even when the you know we just started the company and we became public and the stock was starting to do whatever it was going to do, he kept on saying, "You need to sell some stock. You need to sell some stock." And I'm like. No, I'm not selling any stock. Why? Why would I sell any stock? This is a company that I plan to build for the rest of my life, and so so I never sold any stock, and and that actually contributed to the fact that I actually was able to hit that billionaire s- status number, um, because you know if I would have sold you know half my stock, you know, it would take a lot more work. Somebody we both know uh, tells me a story with half a smile on his face, and now he's got like a two million dollar pool in his backyard in California. 
that really cost him like 300000 because he sold the EXP stock and the EXP stock went to $2 million and how he should have held on to it. There are a lot of stories like that. Oh, yeah. Brian Colhane would be another one. Yeah, has, I heard him has, talk about that. Who has a couple million dollar pool in his backyard that he technically only paid like you know, 100000 for. Yeah. That's yeah. So moral of the story is, uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, billionaires, most first generation billionaires did it obviously exactly like you did. And most of their net worth is in the companies that they founded, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that like um, when. Uh, oh, Apple, um, Steve Jobs, like when he passed, supposedly he only owned two stocks. It was uh, uh, it was uh, Apple and. Pixar or whatever, whatever, wherever Pixar went, or mm. uh, maybe it was Disney. But he only owned two stocks, and like he didn't like, and that that's where all his net worth was. And so there's a lot of people that you know. Why would you, if you're really good at what you do, why would you invest, you know, in other people's stuff when you could just, you know, invest in yourself? Completely. Um, this is the, this is the question I was looking forward to asking you, and this is something that I hear a lot, and people are sort of mumbling about it. And the essence of this question is, it's too late to join EXP, right? The train has left the station. And, and Julie and I did this research. You know, in business school, we learned about the stages of product maturity, how a new product or model evolves. In the first phase, is innovators. You remember this reverse, this bell curve, basically. Innovators, early adopters, early majority, and late majority. Um, you know, the innovators would be up to EXP, I would imagine it was when you had up to maybe a thousand agents, right? Those maybe not even that, maybe only 500, right? And then you had, but where do you think EXP is in that as far as the different phases? Yeah, so um, one, keep in mind that real estate agents turnover, there's a lot of turnover in this industry. So you think about the fact that, you know, we've got 60,000, there's 1.5 million licensed realtors. In the a record States. right now. Yeah, so... Yeah, I think actually 1.5 million members of NAR, but that doesn't include all licensed realtors in the United States because not all of them join the National Association of Realtors. Oh, yeah, so so I think in order to refer to yourself as a realtor, you have to be a member of NAR. So real estate right. agents is, and professionals is over 2 million, I think. Right. Yeah. It's, I heard 2.3 actually, Glenn, okay. recently. Mm -hmm. So you got 2.3 million licensed individuals in the U.S. You've got another, you know, couple hundred thousand in Canada or, or more two or three hundred thousand in Canada you've got worldwide there's probably 20 million agents in some capacity around the world um, so we're still really small I mean last year I just read um, a stat we exp represent 2.7 percent of the real estate market in the United States so 2.7 percent so you know let's say that we um, that we grow over the next, you know, let's five years to whatever the number gets to, but maybe we get to somewhere close to half a million agents worldwide. Well, that means that we're just barely 10% of the way there. And I think that you start to think about five years from now, it's pretty easy to get to a half million number. Uh, might be a little aggressive, but probably not that aggressive. 50% year over year growth from where we're at now in five years is probably something like 484,000 people. Um, and so maybe we get a quarter million. Real G has over 300,000 people associated with their brand. Keller Williams has, what, 160, 170,000. Remax has, you know, worldwide, you know, 120,000 agents. So, you know, for us to, to think about the size and then think about the fact that even inside of those companies, how many people have turned over over the years for them to retain that number of agents? Well, we're going to turn over a lot of agents, just like every other real estate brokerage. So, 
you'll have the 60,000 agents you start to go out you know, a few years from now, maybe 25,000 of them are still with EXP and there's another 300,000 or whatever the number is that are, have joined us since. And uh, there'll be a number of people that, that joined today that will be earning high six, low seven figure businesses just by helping EXP grow. And the uh, international growth with Michael Valdez, what he's been doing is extraordinary. Oh, yeah. It, that's just it's I, I I've never I, have you ever experienced anything like that? Clay? I mean, it's, it's like it's like every two weeks up. Oh, we opened up this country, opened up that country. And I even look at our revenue share. We've got, you know, it's India and Colombia. So much from Colombia and Mexico, Spain. Have you see all this, too? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and it's growing like, like you look at places like India. I mean, India has over a billion people in it. <laughs> Um, and like Mexico, we're being told already that we're probably going to be a professionalizing factor to the industry, the real estate industry in Mexico, because in Mexico, there isn't really a standardized system for how real estate's done. There's no license. In a lot of Mexico, that's true. There's not a license, and there, in almost all of Mexico, there's nothing There's nothing like an MLS. Cabo has, has a bit of an MLS, um, but... For the most part, there's no professional standards. And so if EXP starts to bring in and sort of pr- provide some professional standards, it just improves the industry as well. And the people like the brokerages and the leaders in Mexico that EXP has attracted, I've met some of them through uh, Orlando, Montiel. Well, amazing people. Oh, yeah. Uh, just that like it's just it's incredible. And they see because they see the big opportunity. They, they see the, you know, it's more than just a brokerage or a mm-hmm. franchise. It's something pretty incredible. So I would say, uh, maybe you'll agree, early adopters, maybe midland, midway through the early adopter phase, maybe the beginning of the early adopter phase. We're certainly not done to early majority. Well, we're not definitely not early majority. We're we're I would say we're er, yeah probably midway through early adopters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree. That's what it feels like. Well, you have these conversations in some of these markets. It's like you know we're just driving through Boise and there's less than 400 agents in Boise and. You know, we have a little group of agents there that we met with, and they're like, uh, yeah, well, there's only 400 agents here. And I'm like, good. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing because it's not oversaturated. There's so much opportunity, and, you know, there, it's, it's exciting. 400 EXP agents in mm-hmm. Boise? Yeah. Okay. It's so fun, Glenn, driving, again, all these beautiful parts and these little communities that Julie and I are able uh, to, you know, blast through over two months in this trip and see EXP signs. I mean, that's really cool. Does, do you get a little kick out of that? You must. I, I, I do, yeah. Like, when I start to see signs around the country and then and there's certain parts of the country i mean boise 400 is pretty good pretty good amount of agents uh for for a community but like charlotte we're the number one real estate brokerage and and number number of cities around the country we're now the number one most dominant real estate brokerage in a lot of cities and and people still try to say well exp is just a recruiting model well yes just like everything else on planet earth if you actually want to grow your company but then you look at the sheer numbers of units and volume in some of these major markets we're a recruiting company but guess what we're also a company that's selling a majority of the real estate in some of these markets well you don't get any benefit from recruiting a non-productive agent (laughs) 100 percent. let's talk about revenue share so this is something revenue share equity in the company and a lot of the other um, ideas that you had that inspired some of the rapid growth of the company. So revenue share has the potential to create many millionaires, multimillionaires and beyond. And I heard a statistic um, recently, 60, 90 days ago, and again, if I'm getting my numbers wrong, forgive me, uh, that 
I don't mean, you know what? I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my question. I'm not going to tell you about my statistic because it might be something you won't want to answer. And it's about a, the company that offers profit share versus revenue share and the number of people that they've uh, paid over a million dollars in the history of the company. Do you know the question? You know what I'm talking about? Well, well you, you can ask whatever, but, uh, but uh, the, um, um, yeah, but I don't know their stats. I heard it was six. A total of this other company, whose name will remain nameless, right? right? That they've that there's a total of six people total that have earned over a million dollars in profit share ever in the company. And last year, I heard a statistic, uh, Dave, that 150 million dollars was paid in revenue share to EXP agents last year. Was it last year, or was it more than a year? You know, I I don't you know I don't track the numbers, so <laughs> I, I don't know how much we paid out in revenue share, but we pay out quite a bit. I mean, we, you think about the fact that we're doing, you know. Um, whatever we've done in the last year, you know, $2 billion in commissions, generally speaking, that have been generated. And you start to think about, okay, well, um, if, you know, 8% of that is paid out in revenue share, that's about 150, 160 million. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So did you think that revenue share and there, did you, did you see it as the, again, I, I've had this conversation with people and they, it's, Sometimes the numbers are too big for people to comprehend. It makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But did you comprehend when you were coming up with this idea that there would be this many agents that were, frankly, becoming millionaires and multimillionaires from revenue share? Did you originally vision have that vision? Um, so on paper, I knew that I, I knew what the numbers su- suggested, uh, but I didn't. I didn't. So there's, you know, you've heard of a swag, right? Mm-hmm. You know what it stands for? Uh, strengths, weaknesses. I forget the no, A and the that, G. That's SWAT. Oh, SWAT. SWAT. So swag is when you sort of put a business plan together, and you and it's a, and you take a swag, which is what the financial is going to be. So a swag stands for scientific wild ass guess. Oh, copy. Yeah. So so, so the uh, so the idea was, you know, on paper we're going. This thing looks like it's got potential. I bottom line is, it, I built the model because if I would have found a company that had this model, I would have been working there as an agent. I wouldn't have started the company. That really fundamentally came down to the reason why the model exists the way it was because it didn't exist and I wanted it for me as an agent. And if, and and quite frankly, I think that agents that join EXP that have that sort of true entrepreneur mindset, truly are good at their craft or true, truly a student of the business, they can't help but be successful in the EXP model. And I, it, it's such a great place to build your business when you know that at the end of the day, in two years, three years, five years, ten years, say it takes ten years time to build, you know, that residual lifestyle, that you now can, in fact, retire if you choose to, without any repercussions around that retirement event, and that again, that just didn't exist. So for me, I was like, there's a there's there's a lot of people who are wired like me that are out there in the marketplace who are looking for this type of company, and so. Um, and, and I knew that those people also knew other people like that as well. So I, I did think that it had the potential, but I didn't think we were going to be at this level by this point in time. I, you know, if we would have been, if you would have asked me in 2009 where I thought we would be in, in 2021, I might have said 10,000 agents, like in 2009. 2012, we said 10,000 agents by 2020, but, you know, now we're, you know, now you start to go out. We're going to be at twenty thirty. I have no clue, but it's going to be a lot. 
Well, I mean, it, yeah, that's it's fascinating, though. The business outgrew your vision of how fast it would grow. I don't think I've ever had anyone that honestly would – have you ever read anybody actually – someone in your position actually saying what you just said? I mean, that's just pure humility right there. What most people would have said, I always thought this is what it's going to be, and it's exactly how I – and you're just being completely transparent and saying that. It's the idea, the original idea was so appealing and outpaced even your expectation of how appealing it would become. That's amazing. Well, I'd started so many businesses in the past that all had great concepts, at least in my mind, that I thought they had potential. And I, there were a few that I was like counting my eggs away, or counting my chickens away before the, the, the eggs hatched and uh, found, and they, and they failed miserably. So what, you know, but all you can do is you, you build a business model you, 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 you try to get it going, you try to create the momentum, and, and there's a certain amount of momentum that you have to get. And I, you know, it's called launch velocity. Well, we just had, you know, both Elon Musk, or not Elon Musk, but we had uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson go to space in the last couple of weeks. But there's a thing called launch velocity. And launch velocity is basically the speed at which a spacecraft has to get to in order to actually get out of Earth's orbit. Now, uh, in the case of Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, they actually didn't leave the, 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 the gravitational pull because they came back down, but they, they, they made it to the edge of space. And, and sort of that was where they, but if you actually want to go through that and you want to break out, I think you have to go like something like 7,000 miles an hour. They got up to like, I think 1,400 miles per hour or 1,200 miles per hour. I think that's how fast Bezos was then, then immediately reversed to start going back. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. You, so that makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. So, so, but if you think about from a business perspective, you know, there's got to be the right set of ingredients in place in order for a company to reach launch velocity. And the problem with most companies is that the, the owners uh, or the architects of those companies think more about their bottom line than the value they're providing to their customer or to their, to their constituency, in our case, agents. And if they just flip that on its head and said, how can I add more value to agents than they could get anywhere else in, in this marketplace, um, you know, assuming that they didn't go bankrupt doing it, you know, that's the way to make true wealth for the people that are in the field. But then by extension, that sort of adds, creates the, the value or the legacy value for the, the true entrepreneur. And, and so I don't understand why we were the first ones to be able to do this. I mean, I sort of do. But um, but at some level, I'm like going, because we were the first, so many agents can just tap into it, take advantage of it, and just run with it. Well, it's the revenue share. It's the stock. It's how you've got things vested over three years. All the stuff is just like, you know, I don't know if you had that, all these, how it na- is now originally in your idea or it just evolved to it. But it does really, it's, it is elegant. I mean, when you're yeah. talking to an agent, and even if they're, you're comparing EXP to anything else in the marketplace, if they just take the time to set their skepticism aside or their natural fear of making a mistake and they compare apples to oranges, it sells itself. Right. It just, it just does. It sells itself. And, and now at this point in the companies and we're just, you know, in the early adopt, you know, basically early adopter stage, uh, but you're looking at so much confirmation. So I'm sorry, so many people out there who have stories to tell of moving DXP and being successful. And even if they're making enough revenue share to cover their house payment, and they've got some stock in the company that they never thought that, you know, equity, they finally have savings. These are the miracles, I think, personally, for the industry. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you know, the number of people that have reached out to me that said that they, they never knew how they were going to send their kids to, 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 to school or 
how they were going to buy a house or do like so many different life events that exp has powered is it's it's pretty darn special like that's that's that is and i'm sure you get messages from people in your you know people's lives you've touched where they're reaching out and going i just did this i can't believe it i'll tell you a funny story i don't know if you've had this but Everyone was like all hyped up when the stock was when you were splitting the stock and people and there was, I had many calls with people who'd never actually logged on to see how much stock they had. Mm-hmm. Did you have any calls like that? Oh, oh yeah, well, I had many. Well, I didn't have calls, but I definitely got messages yeah. from people. Yeah. yeah, I got I get texts, and, and so that is funny, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's how you do it. I created a little video and I sent it to them. You know, it's three or four clicks, and you can see what your equity is, and that was funny. I have to yeah. say, a whole week or two weeks where people are just so bouncing off the walls. You know, that's a good experience. To oh have. yeah, I mean, there's so many people that were sitting there going, you know, their 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 value of EXP stock that they had that they got for free was worth more than all the stocks that they had bought for the last 10 years. Now, they might not have invested that much, but they, like the value of their equity in EXP had far exceeded any of their other investments. Yeah, but Glenn, this goes back to what I said earlier. It's the reason, you know, I think it's such, it's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just, a, you know, agents are obviously their immediate lives, but you're changing, you're changing generations of agents' lives if they take advantage of the opportunity that you created. Right. It, it really is something that's transformative for just potentially millions of people all over the world if they just open their minds to realizing what opportunity there is within EXP. That's something, you know, I say this to people, and I'm 51, right? This is probably the last best business opportunity of our, of our lives. Not the last business opportunity, but the last best business opportunity. Not for you necessarily, but I'm just saying in general, the people I speak with, that really resonates with them. Yeah, well, I think it is for me too, quite frankly. I mean, uh, you know, I've looked at, you know, what, you know, I, I do the what is. What if I, you know, exited, you know, and you know, and there's not a single thing I can think of that's more has is more rewarding, it touches more people's lives, and and has more uh, business upside than just building EXP. I yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, mm-hmm. what, yeah, hundred percent. So uh, last couple of questions. I really appreciate your patience answering all these. By the way, um, <laughs> this is a funny question. So you have a birthday coming up. You're a billionaire. And by definition, you're hard to shop for is a Julie question. Uh, what would be the perfect gift for you? <laughs> that's cool. That's uh, a- perfect <laughs> gift for me? I don't know. We'll find, no more questions? Find, 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 a, find a nice show on Netflix and just uh, make a, have a little dinner at home or something like that. Uh, cl- <laughs> classic introvert answer. I appreciate that. Um, so what question should I have asked you that I didn't? What would be a question that you would have, or something you would have liked to have talked about maybe where your mind's yeah, um, can't think of them. I, you, you asked all the you asked all the good questions. I skipped the easy questions. The easy, we had we had a lot of easy ones. I no. wanted I wanted to make this something that people could listen to where they could really relate and appreciate it. And I think we did a great job. Yep, yeah, no, I think I, I think we did. I think we I think we can call this a podcast. Okay, awesome, good stuff, <laughs> great. So, listeners, there you go. We really appreciate you listening today. This was uh, an interview that, frankly, I've been trying to get with Glenn for a long time, but I did not want to do it on a Zoom. And that's the reason I never actually followed through on the Zoom uh, that you had agreed to previously. I wanted to do it in person because I, I wanted this to be archival for you, but also for Julie and I, because this is something really special to me and something I was really looking forward to. So I appreciate it sincerely. Awesome. Thanks. So too. listeners, you have a fantastic day and we'll talk with you on the show tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.